Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Download episodes of previous shows. Welcome to the podcast. Today's podcast episode is brought to you by Belay. Once upon a time, social media was easy enough to manage on your own. A tweet here, follow there, and some icons in the footer of our websites and emails, and that was it, right? Set it and forget. But not anymore, because now social media moves at the speed of life. The good news, however, is that social media has leveled the exposure playing field, and its opportunities are endless for businesses to increase brand awareness and new customer gains, all without paying to play like in the traditional advertising media days of yore. But if you're a small to medium business, the thought of hiring someone to manage your social presence seems lofty at best and decadently impossible at worst. Thankfully, our friends at Belay understand this. We've actually had Belay on the podcast before, not as a sponsor, they're sponsoring this episode, but we've had the founders on because they're great. And with nearly 11 years of experience matching thousands of organizations with US-based social media strategists, They have the right support ready to help your business grow without the added stress of having to do everything on your own. Now, to help you get started, Belay is offering their resource, Hiring Isn't Hard, Nine Secrets That Make It Easy, for free to all of the podcast listeners right now. Get back to doing what only you can do today. All you have to do to get this really amazing resource is just text SPI to 55123 for this free resource today. That's SPI to 55123. So we're well over 500 episodes now of this More Passive Income podcast. And several of our guests were people that I've met in person who I got to connect with at an event or who who reached out to me. We built a relationship together. And because I knew they had value to provide, they've been on the show. And many of them were great. Many of the people on the show were a result of you. So crowdsourcing ideas. I have either asked you who should be on the show or you have told me. And many of those people have been on the show. But today's guest is a little bit different because I actually crowdsourced this from my team. Several team members within Team SPI, you've met many of them before here on the show, they all recommended this person and I could not be more thankful because our guest today, Arvid Kahl, is one of the most fascinating people that I've met in a very long time. Author, but more than that, he's doing business the right way. And everything that I've talked about in terms of, well, how should you start a business? Everything that I've spoken about in my books, he is doing it. And he's gonna tell us exactly what he's doing and how he's doing it. He has a website over at thebootstrappedfounder.com. And as far as people on Twitter, he's probably the best person I've found who uses Twitter to build an audience in the right way. And you're gonna find a number of principles in this episode that you will be able to take home with you to get started right now as far as the easiest way that you can get started to build a following, a community, and a business right now. You gotta stay tuned. This is an epic episode. Again, Arvid Kahl from thebootstrappedfounder.com at Arvid Kahl, K A. HL. We'll have links in the show notes and stuff, but this is going to be epic. Anyway, let's play the intro so we can get right into it. Here we go. 
Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host. He actually met a family member through one of those genetic tests. Pat Flynn. What's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here, and welcome to session 517 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. I'm so excited to welcome author and fellow just person who cares about their audience because it becomes so apparent here. And like I said, so many principles that are so easy to grasp that are right in front of us that for whatever reason we just don't do. Arvid's gonna talk about them today. Again, you can follow him on Twitter if you wanna see how to do Twitter right, at A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L and bootstrappedfounder.com. Here he is. Arvid, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan, so this is awesome. Well, thank you so much. I've only recently gotten to know what you've been up to, and oh my gosh, you have so much experience and wisdom and things to share. This is gonna be a really great episode because today we're gonna be going almost from start to finish from building an audience, learning about that audience, building something for that audience. And I know you've even exited before and have done very well for yourself. Why don't you give us a brief history of what you've done and what your specialty is? Oh, brief, that's gonna be complicated because that's really not my forte, but I'm, I'm gonna try. So I, I used to be just a software engineer. That's kind of how I describe myself today because uh, a lot of stuff happened since I've been just a software engineer. I co-founded a couple of SaaS, bootstrap SaaS businesses with friends here in Berlin. I worked for a VC-funded software business in Silicon Valley. I did a lot of SaaS stuff and I did a lot of software development stuff. Most of the projects that I co-founded with people failed and learned a lot. But one that didn't fail, one that actually succeeded was the project that I co-founded with my girlfriend called Feedback Panda. We started, yeah, an edtech productivity SaaS because she was an online teacher so we built something for people like her and her. It was called Feedback Panda. We started that business, bootstrapped it in 2017. And we sold it when it was around $55,000 MRR in 2019, just under two years later for an undisclosed but life-changing amount of money to a private equity company. And ever since then, I kind of flipped the script and started talking about what I was doing instead of just doing it. I still run a little SaaS at this moment, but I've been much more actively trying to teach people understanding how the SaaS world works like from the start to finish, from zero to sold, essentially. And I've been building an audience on Twitter. I've been sharing what I know with the audience. They've been telling me what they want me to talk about. And I've been doing that. And I've recently released a new book that yeah, contains everything I know about audience building and finding your audience. So that's what I've been up to. I've been a software engineer, then I turned into an entrepreneur slash software engineer, and then I turned into an author slash entrepreneur slash software engineer, right? It's a pretty um, interesting journey. So I wouldn't even try to categorize myself anymore. I'm just doing everything that helps people maybe the best way. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like your journey was very similar to mine after having gotten laid off from an architecture job that I loved and then building something and then having people go, well, how'd you do that? And then just basically stepping forward to help as much as possible. And that's what I loved and what I connected with you when I was researching your stuff the most was just how giving you were, how just kind and generous you've been. And so I'm just very thankful for your time here today. And so audience building and SaaS, can, for those of you who are listening who might not know what that means, uh, Arvid, can you explain what SaaS specifically is as far as uh, what, how that helps people? SaaS essentially is a short for software as a service, and it kind of describes any kind of business that has an offering that is continuously used by people to solve their problems. And they usually pay 
in some sort of recurring form. So the monthly fee or something like that is, is usually involved. And it's always a software business because that's what the first S stands for. And the it's always a service business because that's what the second S stands for. So it's, it's kind of the a mix, a, a digital service product. Gotcha. And what is the benefit of doing a SaaS product versus, say, for example, online courses or coaching or consulting or things like that? Well, the moment somebody pays you every month, you know that next month this person is very likely to pay you. So if you look at the, the metrics that most SaaS businesses inter track internally, they are looking at churn and retention. And most businesses have like 80, 90 some percent retention. So you know that this month you got $1,000 from your existing customers just a figure here, the next month you're going to get at least 800 or 900. If you sell a book, if you sell an info product or a course where you have to sell something to new people all the time, you have to have the sales pipeline coming in. But with a SaaS business in particular, you have a pretty planable runway for the business. Obviously, lots of stuff can change and the pandemic certainly changed a lot of these numbers, churn and revenue numbers for SaaS businesses all over the world. But it's usually pretty nice to have this because it generates money even when you're not actively seeking new customers. And since we're talking about potential passive incomes, it may not be as passive as something that just prints you money while you sleep, but it's pretty damn close. I know what a lot of people who are listening to this might be thinking. And I know because I've thought this myself before diving into the SaaS world a bit. And it sounds like the holy grail. It's like, wow, this recurring income, you set up this software that you create once and it just kind of churns, like you said, and, and that's a good thing. Um, I'm not a software engineer. This sounds very expensive. What do I even create? There's so many softwares out there already that can serve people. So keeping those questions in mind, why don't we just start from the beginning? Because a lot of the audience here, they have audiences or are going to build an audience. Before we even get into the solution of building a product like that, how do you recommend we build an audience to eventually lead us to that point? Now, that's the million dollar question, I guess, because I found one thing, and, and maybe this as a little preamble to this actual, like the actual response to this. I found that a lot of people, particularly when they're software engineers and when they're from a technical background, they try to build products. They're so focused on building solutions that they kind of forget who they are building this for. They start with an idea. I want to build Tinder for cats or, you know, like some weird software product that they exactly know what it's going to look like and how it's going to feel. And because they need it most of the time, but they don't make sure that anybody else needs this. They don't make sure that there's actually a viable audience, a potential audience out there for this product. They're just so focused on the solution, so focused on the product that they go essentially product first. Right? They built a product, they use like half a year's worth of their time to build something, and then they put it on Product Hunt or another website where you launch stuff and then crickets. Nothing happens, half a year wasted, no customers, no people that could actually cheer for you, nobody wants you to succeed, you just fail. And this is the kind of failing that is actually kind of sad. Lots of fails that you have in your life are learning opportunities. Like most of the time, if we fail, we learn something cool or we learn a way how not to do it which increases the chances that we get it right the next time. So failing is usually awesome, but there is the failing that you could have prevented because you just went at it the totally wrong way. And that wrong way to me is product first because I see this playing out every single time. I have a somewhat sizable Twitter audience at this point and I see a lot of people complaining. I built this and nobody wants it. What I want to do is to go to people and tell them, well, let's try this again, but this time don't start with the product, but start with the people figure out who you actually want to empower, who you want to serve, and then find their most critical problem and 
find a solution to it with them, for them, not just because you want to build it. You don't matter. And the actual solution that you build also doesn't matter in the beginning. What matters are those people. And the idea now, that shift that happens here is that we now start really looking for those people and we start joining their communities. And that's how you find an audience nowadays, I feel at least, because I see this play out very effectively for lots of people on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, doesn't really matter. If you want to find a community, if you want to find an audience, you have to go to where they already are. You have to go where those people are actually already congregating, talking to each other and exchanging information. And that usually is a social media community that could be a forum. It's better if the forum looks like it's from the 90s because then it actually might be from the 90s and it's an old community with a lot of people you know, that, that have been interacting with each other for a long, long time. You can go to Discords or Slacks or if you're a little bit older, IRC channels and find your audience there. There, there is a, a whole lot of potential hunting grounds for your audience out there and the easiest way to actually find them is to go there and to join them, to embed yourself in their communities, and then to start observing them, figuring out how do they talk, what do they talk about, what do they care about, figuring out what of those things that they care about do they have problems with, do they complain about them, do they look for recommendations, alternatives, any of these kind of little messages that you can find, can I build something for that, and then asking them, communicating with them, actually talking to people, and figuring out, is this something that you need help with, would this solution help you? And that's kind of the, the first steps. And only then do you ever start building. It then is when you start coding, or then is when you start writing, or then is when you start recording your course. But all this stuff from before, that has to happen before you go into the making part. And a lot of people love to skip all the, the audience exploration and discovery parts, and they start making because that's what they've been trained to do. If you look at a software engineer, right? They are trained to build. They're not necessarily trained to talk to people. It, even worse, like lots of software engineers actively get discouraged from talking to people because they're supposed to be nerds or weird or socially inept. And that is something that is highly destructive to technical people who want to build a business because they come in and they think, oh, I can talk to people, so I better start building. Super destructive, super high risk because there's no validation in this. If you build something, you don't know if people out there need your solution. You don't know if there's even a problem that you're solving and you don't know if people have a budget for that. All of this can be reversed and actually validated if you go to where people are, figure out what they're already paying money for and then solve their problems with them and for them. I love it. It reminds me of a Seth Godin quote, which is, you don't want to find customers for your product. You want to find the products for your customers or create the products for your audience. And when you say put yourself in these communities, I'm imagining, and this is probably why your book is titled The Embedded Entrepreneur, right? You are embedding yourself into that group of people to learn more about them, to communicate with them. And that's the only way to do it. So I, I would love to hear from you more specifically. We have a niche or a market that we're into. We're getting excited about it. We embed ourselves in that community. What specifically do we do? What questions are we asking? How? It all starts really with talking to people. And this might be scary for some people and quite enjoyable for others, but it needs to happen nonetheless. Because once... There are situations where you already are part of certain communities. And that's kind of what, I've, what I'm trying to get to in the book. That's one of the first things that you do in the, the audience discovery chapter is to figure out what communities am I already part of? What potential audiences do I already kind of feel connected with? For me, that would be I'm a software engineer. I'm an, an entrepreneur. I'm a bootstrap founder. I'm a regular founder. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm a maker. All of these communities already exist out there and I'm part of them already. But I'm also somebody who really likes coffee in the morning. 
and who loves to have fish in an aquarium and who really enjoys like semi-hot showers. You can be very specific with these things. And all of that is a potential audience because there certainly are a lot of info products on coffee out there. Just look at any bookstore. Or there are a lot of tiny little tools for people who want to have some auto-feeding device for their fish when they're on vacation. That is a market. And you can build stuff. They actually have like Arduino integrations, really interesting stuff, but don't want to go into that. There are a lot of potential niches and audiences out there, and you might be part of a lot of them. And for those that you're just interested in, but not part of, and that's kind of where your question comes from, I guess, you talk to people who are part of this community and you ask them, well, where do you go to learn more? Where do you go to hang out with other people that like the same stuff that you like? And then they tell you something and you go there. If it's a subreddit, you go there, you join Reddit and you make a little account and you go into the subreddit and you figure out what other subreddits are connected to this and you go there. Or if it's a Facebook group, you go into the Facebook group and you find a lot of people, you talk to them and you ask them, well, where else do you go? Where else do you hang out? And then over time, you, this is kind of an, an, an audience community location recursion because you go to one place, you ask, where else are you? You go to the next place, you ask, where else are you? And then you have this graph of interconnected communities and you have a pretty solid lay of the land. And I know that you've been written, you've been writing about this too, with the four Ps and all of that, like an actual, like, the market, like a, a representation of the place, places where people are and where communities are engaging with each other. Because if you want to be actually good at helping people, you need to be where they are you need to listen to them and you need to be able to be in contact with those people, either for just these kind of exploration calls that you sometimes can do with people. I'm interested in building something that you have half an hour. Or once they are your customers, you actually do kind of feedback cycle communication with them. You need to know where these people are because otherwise you will never be able to attract them to the thing that you want to help them with. And this, this recursion strategy works pretty well. And if you already are in communities, really just talking to people will expose you to new and interesting locations. So that's how you go get in there. And then the question is, obviously, how do you learn more about people? How do you start actually building a reputation as somebody that people can trust? Because that's the next step. Just lurking in a community, that's probably not enough. You need to interact with people. You need to engage with them because otherwise you're just going to work on assumptions the same way as if you had gone product first and built your Tinder for cats and then hoping that there would be enough cats out there who could use computers. Now, even that is a, it's, it's a pretty hilarious example because it's obviously wrong because, yeah, but most products out there work like that. People hope that there's an audience and it very likely isn't there because if if they if they need to hope, then it's a sign that it doesn't exist. Otherwise, they would already know, right? You know, so you really need to build a reputation as somebody that that is at an active member in the community. Because you, let's go into the example with fish, with aquaristic, like having aquariums. If you go into this community for the only purpose to sell, with the only purpose to just try to sell them something, first off, you're going to be kicked out of this community quite quickly. And nobody will ever buy your thing other than a few victims, and they will burn your reputation forever. And honestly, we are entering a phase in online business that is more and more, even than before, reputation-based. There were ways to get away with this, but there are not as many ways to get away with a burnt reputation anymore. And a, a solid reputation is something that will just make a lot of stuff possible for you. I'm noticing this now at this point. I've been building an audience, building a following around being empathetic 
around being helpful and supportive. And it comes back to me already. And I've been doing this for a couple of years. Before that, I was a software engineer, not doing much community work at all. But I decided to give back to people because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. The people that taught me what to do are still out there teaching. And I want to join them. I want to be like those people, helping other people succeed. So that's what I make my mission now. And I see that by having this very positive reputation and by maintaining it, more and more people join me in the cause. They read what I'm writing about. They talk to me about what I'm doing. They suggest things to me. And some of them even buy my book, which is wonderful. But it's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it so that people actually get to the point where they themselves can teach other people and write books about it. That's why I'm heading. So that reputation is essential. And that is what you get by being part of a community, being an active member of communities. And when you build that reputation, when you start to make actual friends, people begin to open up about what their problems might be, what they might need help with. And so when you start getting in these communities and you start getting 20 people saying 20 different things about the things that they might need help with, how do you begin to go, okay, this is the thing I'm going to build a solution for? How do you validate that? That's always a a big problem because there's a lot of noise in a lot of communities. And the best way to deal with this that I have found, and I've been doing this myself and with mentees and consulting clients, is to actually keep a tally, like to literally take some time every single day, 20 minutes, an hour, if you can spare the time, as much time as you you can, to go into the community and to look for the four kinds of messages that kind of hint at the existence of a problem, try to identify the problem, and then keep a list. And those four kinds, I already mentioned it, I think, is people just complaining, people just being fed up and complaining about something kind of shows that there's a problem. They don't really know what it is, but they are complaining. Then people asking for help, which is where people explicitly say, I'm having trouble with this, where they have recognized that this is a problem. They just don't know the solution. Then people asking for a recommendation where they know the problem exists, the solution must be out there, and now just tell me what it is. And then finally, people asking for alternatives to existing products where they know, I know my problem, know the solution, no product is out there, but this isn't good enough. I need something better. And funny enough, this maps perfectly to Eugene Schwartz's awareness scale, the prospect awareness scale that is used in marketing quite a lot, where you look at problem aware, solution aware, product aware, and completely aware. And you use that in marketing as a means to figure out how much you need to teach people about the problem or the product. But this is the same thing in communities. You can find all these four steps or these four kinds of messages. And of course, the higher they are up that ladder, the higher they are closer to asking for alternatives, the easier it is to build something because you don't need to teach people about the problem or that there's a solution already. They know. They're just looking for something, right? But the further down you go, the more people you have in the funnel because the distribution usually is that most people are unaware and only few are climbing those ladders. So it it really depends on what you're building, what kind of product you're building and what industry you're building. But it's interesting to look for those four, maybe decide for which one you're looking for most and then starting to tally them. And after a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months, this is not going to be a two day thing or a two hour situation. If you want to embed yourself in a community, you're going to spend some time there. And I think this is true for all kinds of entrepreneurship, right? If you want to be successful, you've got to be consistent and persistent at the same time for long. So same deal here. If you want to do problem discovery, you need to tally every single day. And then after a while, you just look at the list and you will find some sort of affinity for certain problems and those you dive into. So it's a half number-driven thing where you look at what is most commonly brought up in the community? What do people complain about most? Then you look into the quality because it also needs to be an urgent and important problem for you to solve. 
particularly if you're trying to build a bootstrap business, right? I'm looking at this mostly through the lens of a SaaS business right now. This obviously applies to info products or courses or other things as well. But from a SaaS business, if you're only one person and you're trying to solopreneur your way into wealth, you need to solve a critical problem. Otherwise, you're going to try and do sales and nobody wants to buy it unless you go really cheap and then your margins shrink. And if you solve a critical and urgent and important problem, the likelihood that your business is going to be and has, having positive revenue is much higher than if you solve any old problem that may just be a nuisance. And you try to figure this out too. Because if people complain about the same thing every single day, it's quite likely that it's an actually urgent problem or important. You don't really know. Or maybe both. You, you can use this like this Eisenhower matrix of urgency and importance that people use for prioritization. You can use that for, prop, for problems too, right? Because you don't need to necessarily... Yeah, look into just feature prioritization for your business. You can also use this kind of the, what is it methodology for figuring out the the urgency or the criticality of a problem. We did this with Feedback Panda, and maybe that's a, a good time to, to bring an anecdote into this because it's getting a, a bit theoretical. But for Feedback Panda, Danielle was experiencing a problem herself, and she noticed that she was teaching for 10 to 12 hours a day, every single day online from her computer. And she was teaching English as a second language to kids in China. It was the cutest thing. You cannot imagine how cute that is. If you teach, if you see somebody teaching kids that are from anywhere from four to 12, really young, actively in front of a computer with a lot of toys, a lot of singing, it's wonderful. So the teaching part, extremely cute. And it's a good way to make money because you can do it from home. But then came the administrative part where you needed, needed to write student feedback for the parents of the kids to read. What did they learn today? What can they exercise for the next lesson? What should they try to get better at? That kind of stuff. And these were Chinese companies. So the curriculum was very strict. It was very clearly laid out. So every teacher working for them, and when Danielle was teaching, there was already like 5,000 teachers doing this online. They essentially taught the same thing the same way and wrote the same feedback, but they all wrote it by hand. We noticed that people were already starting to create their own little systems. They had like Google Sheets somewhere or a Word document with text templates that they would use and just fill in the name of the student or some additional information. And that's usually a good sign that there's an important and urgent problem right here. And then we looked into the, the Facebook communities that Danielle was already part of because she was a teacher. And it was a community of a couple thousand teachers. And every single day, somebody would complain about student feedback. New people joined, and the next day after their first lesson, they would ask, how do you deal with feedback? And then somebody would come in and they would say, well, some people try their system. Here's a Word document that kind of works for like 10% of the people, and it would be a whole thing. What we thought is, well, if we can build something that sits on top of this curriculum that integrates into this online school and makes it easier for people to just really write their own templates and reuse them all the time, we would help every single person that is complaining about this every single day. And that's what we did. I built the tool for her. She told me what she needed. Then we figured out to, to get it to a work, into a workable condition. I had built a couple SaaS projects in the past. So I knew how to build authentication and billing and all these things that you need to turn it into an actual business, not just a hobby product. And then we launched it within the community. People could, you know, like everybody asked about feedback on any given day. So we really just needed to wait for opportunity to tell them, well, if you want to deal with feedback, use Feedback Panda. And then at some point, we would say, well, we also built Feedback Panda, but come on, use it, try it out. And it turned into an extremely recommendable product because we built it with recommendability in mind within this community. And because not only could people have their templates in there, they could also share them with each other. And that 
feature of sharing templates from teacher to teacher, it turned this into an extremely recommendable and referable product. We didn't even have a referral system for a year and people started referring like crazy. We did zero paid advertising because we didn't need to. It all happened word of mouth in the community. And that's the strength of a community. And that's the strength of figuring out where your community is before you actually build something. Because we knew critical problem right there. We have a solution. The solution works. We just need to put it back in. And then people automatically created the buzz because whenever a new teacher joined, they would ask, how do I deal with feedback? And then somebody would come and say, well, have you tried Feedback Panda? It's really nice. It's worth the 10 bucks a month. That's what people said. These are online teachers, people who are online teaching as their third job because they already have two jobs, but they don't make enough money to make ends meet. And those people who have no budget for nothing they still recommend it as a monthly subscription tool because it had such an impact on the quality of life. And that's kind of where I want to be. And we would have never been there if we hadn't had access to people from like from the start who told us, this doesn't work for me, this doesn't work. Danielle was one of the biggest people who criticized the project because it needed to work for her. But then once other people were in there, we saw other use cases and other configurations that we didn't think of. They came back, we fixed it within minutes and turn them into glowing evangelists for the product because we really focused on making fast choices and making it much better for them quickly. And it took off from there. And that was my first real contact with a community-driven business. And I've loved it ever since. And in a way, I'm kind of building a media business around myself within the community at this moment by writing books and having a podcast and having a newsletter and all that stuff. And it's just the most enjoyable thing that I've ever done in my life to be there for people and interact with people every single day. That's where my passion is right now. And that's why I grew, this passion grew within Feedback Panda because being able to interact with those teachers, seeing them light up when we would do something nice for them, that washed away every kind of passion that I felt before. Because when we sold the business, when we sold, the, we sold Feedback Panda in, in 2019, it was the weirdest thing because I, I thought this would be great, but I fell into this void of not knowing what to do. Because all of a sudden, you take a business that you work on for 24-7, and we were just two people. Danielle and I were the only people in the business because we didn't hire, and that was that was a mistake, I guess. At least my mental health is severely impacted by that. And maybe we can talk about this too, because I think we should. It's an important topic. But we sold a business, and all of a sudden, I had nothing to do. And I thought, hey, great, finally time to go back to World of Warcraft. I wasted a couple of years at university there. It's probably going to be great again. And I played the game crickets, nothing, no joy. Because all that passion that I thought I had for the game, that was not good enough anymore. Because here were people, thousands, we had 5,000 some customers at that point, that every single day would interact with me in some way and helping them was my passion. And gaming could not compete anymore. Made me kind of sad because I just paid for World of Warcraft, you know. But in many ways, it showed me that I wanted to do this again. I wanted to help people again. And by being able to now talk about my journey, that's the first thing I did was start a blog and write about what I knew. Mostly also about mental health issues. This was a very strong thing at the time. I was very, very anxious, had a lot of anxiety, very stressed, very mid-burnout when we sold the business because I was the only technical person in a two-person company with thousands of customers and a lot of responsibilities hanging over my head. The company was our only source of revenue, our only source of income, and we didn't have any diversified assets. So everything was riding on me not getting sick. It's not a good way to run a business. So that was one of the motivations that I started writing, and it immediately resonated with people. The fact that here's a founder that's actually also talking about the dark sides, the, the sad and the anxious parts 
of running a SaaS business that was really helpful in, in getting a couple of eyes on what I was writing about. And then I started branching out into all kinds of topics. Some of them found resonance within the community, some of them not so much. And I continued writing about what people wanted me to write about. Led to one book where I just really detailed the whole journey of Feedback Panda. And then led to another book where people told me, hey, this part of the book, you could write more about this. I really want to know about audience building and who to serve. And that led to The Embedded Entrepreneur. And that book itself is a, an audience-driven project. I started that with a tweet, told people, hey, I want to write about audience first. That's what I called it back then. At some later point, people told me, hey, your definition of audience first is not my definition of audience first. We had this little Twitter exchange. And then I thought, hey, these are my readers. These are actually my potential customers. If they tell me that the title of the book is not what they thought it would be about, maybe I should listen to them. And then I renamed the book. So everything about this book was audience-driven. I had a, an alpha, alpha reader stage where I had 550 people involved in the manuscript, just editing it with me. And there's a gigantic list in the acknowledgement section at the back of the book with all those people called out that wanted me to put their name in the book. It's just such a cool effort to do this with people. Instead of just doing it and then throwing it into the market, I did it from within the market. And the resonance has been extremely positive. And I've had so much support. I'm beyond grateful for everything there. It's been really cool. Congratulations to you and all that success. That's amazing. We at SPI are very much focused on the audience-driven stuff as well because that in and of itself is validation as it's happening. And it's just, just there's no better way than, than that. And again, The Embedded Entrepreneur, check it out. Where is it? Amazon, elsewhere? Yeah, it's, it's on, on Amazon and on Gumroad. The, the website is embeddedentrepreneur.com. But yeah, you, you'll find it on Amazon or on Twitter because people talk about it a lot, which is really nice because that's my audience, right? They, they are now reading the book. They have been reading the book ever since I put out the first manuscript, so the first draft of the manuscript, because they've been part, a lot of the people in my audience have been part of this process. So they've been sharing it with people. And now those people have read the book and are starting to actually implement it. And now they're sharing it with people. It's just a wonderful effect to see people recognize somebody who understands what they want and understands how to talk to them, speaks their language, speaks in, in the, the kind of the concepts and patterns that are in their industry that they use every single day. And I really, really enjoy the resonance that I've been getting. A lot of pictures of the book. A lot of people tweet pictures of themselves with the, the paper bag. And for some reason, my book gets to travel more than I do. Like I've seen my book in front of pools, in airplanes, like on really nice balconies in Italy. And here I'm sitting in Berlin in my little apartment. I'm still having a great time, but I, I'm envious of my book at this point. So that's where I am in this pandemic. I can tell you about that. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just wonderful. I'm I'm having a blast. Like I said, best time of my life is being involved with people that I actually care about and doing stuff for them with them. A lot of what you're doing is something that is based on a phrase that I once heard ConvertKit talk about recently, and that's called working in public, right? You're essentially building with everybody and letting people know instead of putting yourself in a hole and then revealing something and then kind of hoping, which is to your point earlier, and then crickets, you get to actually build this thing along with your crowd in a way that becomes the way that they would want it anyway. It's kind of selfish to kind of take the approach of, I know exactly what my audience wants and you'll just have to wait for it versus hey, I don't know everything that you might need. Like, let's work on it together, which I really love. Next question, hoard or alliance? <laughs> well, I'm I'm a hoard kind of person, but I, I do dabble because, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of an alliance guy, actually. Uh, World of Warcraft sucked away a, a year of my life in college. So I'm very much 
able to connect with you on that. And that kind of relates to the next topic here, which I want to talk about, because I do want to talk about bootstrapping and how one might, if they're not a developer, for example, how they can still get a software developed. But I do want to talk about this really important thing called mental health. Can you dive a little bit more deeper into what you wish you had done differently to stay a little bit more sane, stay a little bit healthier and be there for the people who needed to be who you'd be there for? I mean, there's so many things that can happen if you don't take care of yourself first. So can you dive into that a little bit? In the beginning, it's it's fairly easy to run a business by yourself. As a team of two, there's really not too much to that. But the moment you have a couple customers and you need to be available for them, you start feeling a certain responsibility, which is also fine. That's just how business works. You create something and other people consume it. And if they have trouble, you help them. But we created this kind of, or I myself, let's just talk about myself here. I created this notion in my mind that I need to be as fast as I can when it comes to a message on Intercom. We were using Intercom as a little chat system for, for all, all purposes of, of customer service. We were using the little Intercom bubble. So I tried to have a sub 10 second response time on Intercom at all times. Somebody would reach out to me. I would be there. Yeah, right? It's not the smartest thing. But what it did in the beginning was wow people. Like, what? Are you a robot? Like, I got a lot of questions about being a robot or not. And then I had to be an actual human being. It's like a, yeah, a Turing test, essentially. It was really funny. Over, over time, people came to expect this. Because obviously, the first time that happened, they were their mind was blown. And I served them quickly. I may even have fixed a bug that they gave me. And fixed it within like 20 minutes, deployed it, and said, just refresh the page. And they were, their mind was blown that they had actually impacted the product in some way. And that was really cool because those people turned out to be the loudest supporters of a business in their community, which is an obvious consequence of helping people beyond what they expect is they will tell people about this because nobody really does that. That was, yeah, the expectation. So over time... We had more customers. We had more things to take care of. I had more integrations to take care of because we started supporting more schools. So to not support people as quick would have felt like something missing, but I just couldn't do it anymore, right? I just could not keep up with this. So that created an internal narrative in my mind where I thought, oh, I'm not good enough anymore. That's one of those things, which is like, obviously in retrospect, it's completely wrong. Circumstances have changed. My job has changed. And the systems in place have changed. So this has nothing to do with, with being good. It's just an optimization problem, right? We're optimizing for different things. So it might just take 30 seconds or a minute or maybe an hour to help these people. They will still be helped and they will still be happy. It's all in my mind. One of those things. So the, this expectation management was a big problem because I really didn't reflect on this. Who really reflects on stuff while they're in the middle of things, right? It's it's hard to reflect on how else could this be if this is your 24-7 experience. So taking yourself out of this is something that I had trouble with. I sometimes succeeded, but most often failed at just stepping back, taking a bird's eye view and seeing what's really important because I was so caught up in the business. Big problem. And I didn't really know about this. I didn't really know how much it would suck me in. So no matter how much literature I read and no matter how many podcasts I listened to, it did not prepare me for that. So what I'm trying now is to tell people the actual stories of what happened so they can kind of sense, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. I don't want to repeat this at, or go as far as other people did. Maybe I can stop myself right now. Another story that I have is one of feeling helpless or feeling the lack of control. We were in Canada. My partner, Danielle, she's Canadian, and we were at the family function. It was a, yeah, a somber event. And it was late at night. People were like in the basement having a good time as much as they could. And I got a ping on my phone from 
yeah, intercom. A lot of people were reaching out about something. So there was something going on. So I had to retreat from this family affair, take my laptop, sit on the bed that was somewhere in another room where nobody was at the time and look into this. Need to talk to people, needed to respond to them and tell them, okay, I see what's going on. Something broke in our browser extension because we had this browser extension that integrated our tool into their online classrooms. And one of those companies, one of these schools had just launched an update to their software and the browser extension didn't work anymore. And it really wasn't critical because the browser extension was a helpful tool, but you could still do everything all by yourself within Feedback Panda. It's just that people were so used to the quality of service that they were adamant that somebody, please fix this browser extension. So here I was sitting while the family was gathering somewhere else trying to fix a browser extension at what was probably 10.30 at night in the darkness, cold, empty darkness of a bedroom. And I was I was just sitting there like, is this the life? Is this my life now that I'm just jumping at whatever comes up and retreating from my actual personal life just to repair something that I could have easily repaired the next morning and it would still have worked? You know, that was a moment where I felt completely helpless because this Chinese company launching something new, I had no control over that. And that could happen anytime. There was no warning system for me to actually tell me a couple of days in advance. They certainly didn't talk to me about it. And here I was really feeling, ah, oh, this is such a waste. I, I would love to not live this life. I would love to not be responsible for this business at this moment. I mean, this is not why you built the business. <laughs> Yeah, that, this is exactly right. Yeah, I, I didn't didn't build the business to sit alone in a bedroom at night. I built it to help people. And one consequence of helping people was building stuff for them when even I didn't want to build stuff. But yeah, that was a, a pretty, pretty low point. And I could have hired people to deal with this. I could have hired another software engineer to take care of the browser extension. I could have hired another customer service person to talk to people while I am doing whatever I'm doing. But I didn't because I had this weird perception that unless it's a full-time position, we don't need to hire somebody into it. Which is, if you think about it, maybe not the smartest way of approaching building a business or growing a business. Because you can easily hire freelancers, somebody on retainer, some part-time job. You know, there's many, many different ways of easing somebody into a position that is not 40 hours a week. But in my mind, and that I'm coming from a salaried software engineering background, a job is a job, and you go there five days a week, and that's what it is. Those are very real stories that I can relate to in many ways, especially with how in the beginning, I was very responsive on email and on social media. And then as the audience grows, it's just like, then all of a sudden, I have 10,000 unread emails in my inbox. And I just felt terrible, felt like I was letting people down. Again, you and I are very similar there. It took me a lot to let go of some of the stuff to eventually hire out. That is something that I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, would you, if you could do it all over again, hire people to help you instead? Much faster. It was one of the things when we transitioned the business, the first thing was to hire our replacements. And we found wonderful people amazing engineers, amazing customer service people, CEOs, essentially, the three positions that we hired for to replace the two positions that we were. And they were great. And they took it over and they had no problem doing everything that we did before. And we just looked at each other. It was like, oh, this is easy and surprisingly effective. Like, why, why didn't we think about that? Or, and the thing is, Danielle told me, to do this all the time. I was just like, nope, I can deal with this. As long as there's no full-time position that is, has to be hired for, I can deal with this. I'm, I'm great. I'm a solo founder. I want to be like all these people that did it by themselves. There was a lot of glorification, like hustle glorification that I, that I had there that I'm now trying to actively warn against. But it took me to actually fall into that hole to understand that it was a hole. 
glorification at what expense, of course. I mean, we, and, and we don't feel that expense until either it's too late or we're burned out or, or, or what have you. So thank you for sharing those. I think a lot of people could avoid those situations or if they're going through it right now, hopefully realize you're not alone, but there are some decisions that you have to make. I would love to ask you about bootstrapping, right? Let's say, let's go back to this community that we've been embedded into. We're a part of it. We're understanding what their problems are. We're learning the language. We are now having conversations with people and we want to build something. And the solution that seems to come up is one that we don't have experience building. It's not necessarily an online course where we could find information or use our own experiences and share that information and help people. It literally would require coding and hard coding and other things that we just don't know how to do. We're not like you and have that ability. So should we pass on that idea? How might we still be able to help this audience? Two solutions come to mind. One is find somebody who can actually code and help you, find a co-founder. That is always an option, but it requires a lot of work and a lot of interpersonal stuff to be right. Like you have to figure out if this person is actually interested in this this audience that you you're interested in. You have to figure out if they have plans. Yeah, it's it's yeah, right. And and so it's one that needs to work. Because if it doesn't, the whole value chain collapses as well. So a big problem. The easier solution is to actually look into no code and look into tools that are not coding tools, but tools built by coders for people who want to build tools that coders would build. <laughs> yeah, the, the no code space is there's a lot of really, really interesting tools out there. I don't know if you were around for Microsoft Front Page and for Dreamweaver. Do you, do you remember these things? I built my first websites on Dreamweaver. Yeah, what you see is what you get. That's what we called it back then. This but much better and much more integrated with each other is what no-code is. Imagine you can really dra drag and drop everything together from a website. There's um, tools out there that do just websites with CMS systems in the background to, to create content that flows into it like a blog. All of this exists and you don't need to write a single line of code to membership communities where you just integrate one no-code tool, like a, an actual account management payment system no-code tool into a community no-code tool, and they are all interconnected. The big player in this space is Zapier, or If This Then That, or Integromat, these little glue tools, and they have APIs, little interfaces for all these tools to interact with each other. So if you have a no-code tool, they will very likely have a Zapier API, and if you have any other no-code tool, they also have one, so you just kind of connect them through this central API. And you can build apps, like full-fledged mobile apps with Bubble. You can yeah, build websites with Webflow. And there's a lot of interesting competitors in that space. So these are just examples. I'm not sponsored by any of them, but they're all great. And you can build a really, really cool things that you would have never thought a person without coding could be building. I've seen people build financial planning tools that integrate with financial institutions, and they have not written a single line of code. There's stuff out there that is, it's just, you still have to learn those tools. It's like any tool that you're interacting with, that you're using, you have to experience how to build certain things. And then you have to kind of graduate into really understanding the tool. I guess, uh, that, yeah, that's that's kind of true for, for any more complicated piece of software out there. But you don't need to know how to code. You just need to know how to click stuff together and connect it. And that is something learnable very quickly compared to learning how to code. Thank you for that. That's really interesting. What about the thought of or potential solution to build a solution to hire a person on contract who is a coder to work on that project? That They're not going to be a co-founder. They're not going to be involved in the business. I just hire a person. I pay them a certain amount of money to build the thing for me. I have some thoughts I'll share in a moment, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. If you can afford it, that is an option. But that's the big problem, right? Most people do not have a solid twenty, thirty thousand dollars for such a project just laying around. 
There are options to get funding for bootstrap businesses. Funny enough, bootstrapping kind of sounds like you shouldn't take money. It's more about building a sustainable, slow growth or non-hyper growth business with the resources that you have at this point. But there are companies out there or funds out there that give like tiny cash injections, 10, 20, 50, something thousand dollars for bootstrap businesses. But most of them look into bootstrap businesses that already are creating revenue. So that, that's not the, the easy way to do it. You can you can take a loan or something like that, but with software businesses in many countries, that's complicated. I certainly experienced it here in Germany with a couple of friends. We tried to build a local food marketplace in Berlin because it's a gigantic city, has lots of hipsters. So they, they want to eat good food from around the city. That was the idea. And it's kind of true. We horribly failed with the product, but it doesn't matter. We went to went to a bank and we asked them, can we get a loan? We kind of want to build this. They looked at us and said, no. If you had a factory, I would already have given you a check, but software, not going to happen. That's still a problem, right? Like getting a, a business loan for a software business, there are not too many banks out there who really understand that, so they don't give you money. So unless you have this kind of cushion or you raise a little friends and family round where you get some money together, it's not not an easy thing, which is why I would go into no-code or finding a co-founder for bootstrap businesses. What are your thoughts? I'm I'm quite interested. I mean, my thoughts are, and I've done this before, I've paid a company to build some WordPress plugins that were going to be premium plugins that I was going to sell. And I failed miserably, partly because A, I rushed into it. B, I was chasing money. I didn't really go into communities. I just thought what I knew would work would work, and it didn't. But number three, I didn't even think about the future. What if there is some WordPress compatibility issue? Well, then I'd have to go and figure out how to hire this person again, like on like pay them on call for retainer or pay a massive amount of money with agency fees and other things on top of it to help them fix things that break that I wouldn't know how to break. That would be 10 times worse than the mental health that I think that was already bad if I knew how to solve the problem, let alone, oh my gosh, this thing broke. I don't even know how to fix it. Oh, that's just that's just not good. That's the problem. Because sometimes as a founder who is not technical, you don't even know what part broke and who is responsible for maybe fixing it, particularly if you work with multiple people. Like you need to get somebody to actually in, in, like do some, some inspection of your thing to tell you who to talk to to maybe fix it. Like there's a lot of complexity in this, obviously. It, it's still for some things, it's good. If you if you look at info products, hiring somebody to to lay out your book or to edit your book, obviously it's a, a task you do once, right? And there's no additional editing. You can do that maybe in a, in a revised version or something, but it's a standalone task. But software is never finished, and that's one one of the core tenets of SaaS is that you never finish building your SaaS. You only finish for what is currently the best version of its product. But next week you might need to integrate a new thing, a new solution, or, and I don't know, Chrome gets an update. And for some reason that doesn't work anymore. You know, there's, everything is changing all the time and dependencies are everywhere. Just like the thing, like with these Chinese schools for me, that was a big dependency because if they changed their system, I needed to react. And it was just one dependency and it already drove me insane. Right? Imagine building a business that is sitting between six or seven different dependencies. Like you're building a tool for business A that interacts with business C through business B. And now you need to be between A and B and integrate them and then B and C and then A and C. And everything is really, really depending on you getting the integrations right. And you never know what's going to happen. Not a fun time. Look at all these Flash tools. Sorry, one more example, because that's a that's a very current one. Flash was Sunset, the whole technology of Flash, like the video animation thing that what YouTube used essentially before they turned to, to HTML5 video. And that was Sunset out of the browsers because Adobe, the company who bought 
Flash from Macromedia, or they acquired Macromedia and got Flash with it, they decided not to update it anymore. So they said, hey, by 2020, we're not going to update it anymore. So the Chrome team said to the Chromium team, which are the people building the actual engine that Chrome is built on, this is the whole complexity of this. They said, we need to get this out of here because we're not going to ship a browser with a tool, with a part, a plugin that is insecure. So now Chromium needed to put a roadmap out there to take this out of Chromium. So all the tools that were depending on Chromium, like there's a lot of other browsers out there that integrate Chromium, just like Chrome, needed to remove this from their browser too. And these Chinese schools were using a plugin for their video that used Flash. You couldn't believe the dependency here. Like Chinese school using another plugin that uses Chrome, that uses Chromium, that uses Flash. And Flash got sunset. So now it rippled all the way back. So they needed to come up with a way to either change their render for their video stream or lock the version of Chrome you're using in time, which is impossible because Chrome auto updates. And there was a whole thing going on. And I think 2020 was a year of many, many tools changing one really big, important infrastructure part because Flash was outdated. Because Flash is not just used for video. Flash was also used for file transfers or for real-time communication. You don't even know where Flash was in. But a lot of companies figured out that they were having Flash somewhere in their dependency chain, and it caused a lot of headaches. Flash, I, I was actually into developing Flash animations back in high school for fun, and it was such a cool tool. But yeah, it's definitely outdated now. Um, as we finish up our conversation here, and again, Arvin, thank you so much for this. So insightful and to hear the stories and the realness of it. That's what I appreciate so, so much. Launching your product, right? So we now have solved this problem. Maybe we've built it, we're building or are building the, the tool, info product or SaaS. It doesn't matter. How do you best let the world know, let your community know that this thing now exists. How do we do that in, in a way that makes sense, especially at the start? Do we offer some special deal for those who are first in? Do you, do you recommend a beta program? Tell me what your thoughts are. So with, with the book, I think I can, can share this here because that is the most current example that I've been going through. It's like the, the most refined version of a launch that I've ever done. I've involved people from the start. Like, like I said, they were there since the tweets that's where I said, I'm going to write about this. And there's been a lot of goodwill and anticipation baked into this process because people who are involved in something, they want to see it come to light. And once it comes to light, they want to share it and see it become successful. So by having people part of the journey, you also encourage them to help you launch the product. I did two launches. I launched on Twitter, where my whole community is, 22-ish thousand people at this point. That's that's my, my Twitter following. I did that on a Wednesday in the middle of the week. I announced it a week before that I will launch next Wednesday so that people could understand that something is going to happen and that Twitter stream is probably going to be full of my stuff, but that's that's all right. So I put a big thread there, like a big video-led thread where I put a little video where I explained what the book is about, that it's finally out, who was involved and how good it is to actually be able to launch it. And then I explained all these things, put more videos in there explaining all the little sections, put links to the product and a couple of reviews that people gave me, just built some buzz. And I launched this thread and then I spent the whole day effectively retweeting this, interacting with every single person that interacted with me giving them the opportunity to further talk to their audience about my product. I did not have a coupon code or anything for the actual launch, but I also sent out emails to my alpha readers, the people who were there for the first manuscript, to my review readers that were doing essentially a review of the, the final product, to the people who bought my previous book, Zero to Sold, on Gumroad, 
I had an email list of them and I sent an email to all three of them with a specific coupon code or I gave them a toolkit for free. I did a little notion-based toolkit for people who are interested in doing this data-driven approach with pre-existing databases and sheets. So I have a, a toolkit there that's also on Gumroad that is like in, in addition to the book. It allows people to quickly go through these steps that I outline in the book to how do you find your audience? How do you find the problem? What's a good schedule to use with Twitter? These kind of things. So I put this, um, gave that for free to all the people who helped me with the book because I thought you're not going to pay 10 bucks for this. You helped me so much already. Here's the toolkit. And to all the other people, I gave a 20% discount. And whenever I go do an AMA somewhere, I put a discount out there or something like that. But honestly, discount wouldn't even have been a necessity because there was already so much hype in a good way by the people who were involved in the product that they carried it out with me. And a week later, I launched a product on Product Hunt, which is usually where software products or more yeah, techie products are launched. I launched it two minutes after the server went to the new day, which is like Pacific time. So at, yeah, in the morning, it's two after, after midnight and immediately engaged my audience. I'm living in Berlin, which is nine hours ahead. So it's nine in the morning. Good time for me to start engaging my audience. And my audience is both American and Indian, because I'm in the middle of these really big startup and entrepreneurship communities. So in the morning, all my Indian friends helped me upvoting the book on Product Hunt. It went to number one within minutes, and it stayed there for the whole day, because in the middle of the day, my European friends started helping me upvoting the product. And at the end of the day, my American friends started helping me upvoting the product or by upvoting the product. So it ended up as number one product of the day, number two product of the week. I'm extremely proud of where this launch went. Obviously, people like it. People supported me and they they got something out of it, both for me, for themselves and for all the other founders out there who might be interested in learning how to understand your audience and build for and with an audience. All right. So cool. Thank you for telling me about that. Uh, super smart to use Product Hunt, especially for your tech more heavy audience. That's perfect. And you might out there listening have your own version of a Product Hunt or Marketplace where your thing could be featured. Wow, so much to unpack here, and I'm sure we could talk for even more, but maybe we'll have to bring you back on at some point to, to uncover more and go deeper into the details. But The Embedded Entrepreneur, check it out on Amazon. And what website would you want people to go to to also check you out? And what's your Twitter so we can all follow you there as well? So my Twitter is Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And I have a blog called The Bootstrap Founder, and that's at thebootstrapfounder.com. And you can find all the books and my newsletter, my podcast, and all the things I write about every week on there as well. But yeah, find, find me on Twitter. My DMs are open. And every founder who wants to talk to me can talk to me. And I'd love to talk to you. So please reach out. Thank you, Ever. This has been such a pleasure and uh, such a blessing to have you on. Thank you so much. And I hope you all enjoyed it. Take care. Thanks, Pat. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Arvid. And again, thank you to my team for recommending Arvid to come on the show because as you can tell, super genuine guy, cares about his community, knows exactly how to build a business as a result of, guess what? Getting his audience involved, finding a problem, really going at it with working in public to solve that problem so that by the time you launch this thing, you don't have to sell it anymore. You've been selling it genuinely and authentically this entire time. I use this exact same process with, I don't know why I said it like that, exact, I, I use this exact same process when selling and promoting the SwitchPod with my partner, Caleb. We worked in public, just like Arvid talks about. We got people involved so that by the time we kickstarted that thing, it was sold already. It was already sold to those people, truly embedding yourself into that space that you're in. So Arvid, thank you so much at A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you can find them also at 
thebootstrappedfounder.com. That was his Twitter handle just there. And of course, you can get all the links and show notes over at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 517. Again, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 517. Whoo, this was a fun episode. Thank you so much for listening in. As always, I appreciate you. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and I'll see you next week or actually this coming Friday for our follow-up Friday episode. I'm gonna go deeper into this topic of audience-driven with you very soon. Anyway, peace out, take care, and as always, Team Flynn for the win. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. Also, today's show is sponsored by AppSumo, the leading digital marketplace for entrepreneurs like you and a great way to get your product in front of over 1 million entrepreneurs, founders, and small businesses. So here's what's going on. They're giving away their entire $1 million Black Friday marketing budget to creators like you. If you have an ebook, an online course, templates, or any other digital products, this is for you. You list your product on AppSumo between September 15th and November 17th, and the first 400 offers to go live will receive $1,000. The next 2,000 will get 250, and everyone who gets listed gets entered to be one of the 10 lucky winners to potentially receive $10,000. So go to AppSumo.com slash Pat Flynn to list your product today and cash in on this amazing deal. Again, AppSumo.com slash Pat Flynn. Link in the description as well. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. My family has gotten a little behind on our doctor visits, but this year, that's changing. We're making health a priority with Emory Healthcare. My husband got the knee replacement he's been putting off. My mom is getting a heart procedure that Emory pioneered, and I scheduled my annual mammogram. And with so many virtual visit options, we are getting it done in 21. Make your health a priority at emoryhealthcare.org slash healthfirst. Excited for a road trip? Start it off right with auto coverage from American Family Insurance. J.D. Power ranked us number one in customer satisfaction with the auto insurance shopping experience among mid-size insurers. Get a quote at AmFam.com. American Family Insurance. For J.D. Power 2021 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to the Trucker Jukebox Show, here on Spreaker Radio, a home of good country music, classics at that. So without further ado, here he is, the man of the hour, Trucker Jukebox, 
Take it away, Jukebox. host trucker jukebox so kick back relax we'll play your favorite songs from yesterday's and today's music on spreaker radio love is a burning thing and it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire 
I fell into a ring of fire. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. And it burns, burns, burns. The ring of fire. The ring of fire. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. And it burns, burns, burns. The ring of fire, the ring of fire. The taste of love is sweet. When hearts like ours meet. I fell for you like a child. Oh, but the fire went wild. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. And it burns, burns, burns. The ring of fire. The ring of fire. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher. And it burns, burns, burns. The ring of fire, the ring of fire. And it burns, burns, burns. The ring of fire, the ring of fire, the ring of fire. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday show. This is our, our Sunday. I said Sunday, didn't I? Wow, I'm I'm behind times here. Wednesday, coffee with you, Box. Good morning, everybody. we got a few people in the house, and I'm sure glad to see you all here. We're going to do an hour of the finest classic country music for you all, and uh, hopefully you, you enjoy it. Absolutely. Our studios inside this... Peterbilt truck. We we are actually a North Carolina folks, and uh, that's where we're bringing the show to you from. And uh, hey, I got me a piping hot cup of coffee in front of me, and I'm ready to roll with this. How about you all? Here's Jimmy Dean, Big Bad John. Big John. Big John. Every morning at the mine you could see him arrive He stood six foot six and weighed 245 Kind of broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip And everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big John Big John Big John Big Bad John Big John Nobody seemed to know where John called home He just drifted into town and stayed all alone He didn't say much, he kind of quiet and shy And if you spoke at all, you just said hi to Big John Somebody said he came from New Orleans Where he got in a fight over a Cajun queen And a crashing blow from a huge right hand Sent a Louisiana fella to the promised land Big John Big John Big Bad John Big John 
Then came the day at the bottom of the mine when a timber cracked and men started crying. Miners were praying and hearts beat fast and everybody thought that they'd breathe their last, except John. Through the dust and the smoke of this man-made hell walked a giant of a man that the miners knew well, grabbed a sagging timber and gave out with a groan, and like a giant oak tree just stood there alone, Big John. Big John. Big Bad John Big John And with all of his strength he gave a mighty shove Then a miner yelled out, there's a light up above And twenty men scrambled from a would-be grave Now there's only one left down there to save Big John With jacks and timbers they started back down Then came that rumble way down in the ground And the smoke and gas belched out of that mine Everybody knew it was the end of the line for Big John. Big John, Big John, Big Bad John, Big John. Now they never reopened that worthless pit, they just placed a marble stand in front of it. These few words are written on that stand. At the bottom of this mine lies a big Big man, Big John. Big John, Big John. Big bad John, Big John.
I've nothing to do. Last night, all alone in a barroom, met a girl with a drink in her hand. She had ruby red lips, cold black hair, and eyes that would tempt any man. Then she came and sat down at my As she placed her soft hands in mine, I found myself wanting to kiss her. For temptation was flowing like wine, and I was all. Myself of my pride, almost persuaded to push my conscience aside. Then we danced, and she whispered. Away from here and be my man. Then I looked into her eyes and I saw it. The reflection of my wedding band, and I was. Sweet love made me stop and go home. Your all-time favorite classic country rock with the Trucker DJ. I moved away to find a better way. I haven't found in this town. Say the stranger where you've been Come on home with me right now Have you ever seen Virginia in the springtime? Or walk to the hills of Tennessee If you've been down the Carolina back road You know there's nothing like a Blue Ridge memory
press on through another day It won't be long till I'm back where I belong There's nothing to keep me in this place Have you ever seen Virginia in springtime? Or walk through the hills of Tennessee? Carolina back road You know there's nothing like The Blue Ridge memory If you've been down the Carolina back road, you know there's nothing like a Blue Ridge memory. Your all-time favorite classic country rock with the Trucker DJ.
yeah. Hey, guys, check out our website at www.truckerjuboxradionetwork.com. Go in there and check her out, guys. You can listen to our our shows on either on Spreaker Radio or on iHeartRadio. Uh, just go in there and check her out, folks. I think you'll like it. I'm making a, a dedication to this next song. Absolutely. To a very special friend. Sometimes it's hard to be a woman Giving all your love to just one man You'll have bad times And he'll have good times Doing things that you don't understand But if you love him You'll forgive him Even though He's hard to understand And if you love him I'll be proud of him Cause after all He's just a man seen the morning burning golden on the mountain in the skies aching with a feeling of the freedom of an eagle when she flies turning on the world the way she smiled upon my soul as I lit down 
feeling as the colors and the sunshine and the shadows of her eyes waking in the morning to the feeling of her fingers on my skin Wiping out the traces of the people and the places that I've been Teaching me that yesterday was something that I never thought of trying Talking of tomorrow and the money love Time we had to spend Loving her was easier Than anything I'll ever do again Coming close together With a feeling that I've never known before In my time She ain't ashamed to be a woman Nor afraid to be a friend I don't know the answer to the easy way She opened every door in my mind But dreaming was as easy as believing It was never gonna end And loving her was easier than anything I'll ever do again She 
Christmas smile Lord, don't you make me smile She's never far away Or too tired to say I want you She's always a lady Just like the ladies But when they turn out the lights She's still a baby to me Cause when we get behind closed doors Then she lets her hair hang down And she makes me glad Sister still on the phone 
That mama's in the kitchen Cooking fried chicken Wishing that I hadn't done wrong Mama, don't you worry about it none, though Everything's gonna be all right, Mama They're teaching us a lot of new things in here, Mama Things like There ain't no good in an evil-hearted woman And I ain't cut out to be no Jesse Jane And you don't go writing hot checks down in Mississippi And there ain't no good chain Yesterday's May Wishing that the hay was all made I bet he's wishing We could go fishing Here I am laying in jail Well, Papa, don't you worry about it none now Everything's gonna be all right, Papa They're teaching us a lesson today We're learning pretty well, too We've already learned a whole lot of stuff already Things like There ain't no good in an evil-hearted woman And I ain't cut out to be no Jesse James And you don't go writing hot checks down in Mississippi And there ain't no good change There ain't no good in an evil-hearted woman And I ain't cut out to be no Jesse James And you don't go writing hot checks
not much, but it's the best that I can do. Golden rain, golden rain, with one tiny little stone, waiting there, waiting there for someone to take me home. By itself, by itself, it's just a cold metallic thing, only love can run through her head as he whispers low with this ring I be golden She says one thing's for certain, I don't love you anymore, and throws down the ring as she walks out the door. Golden
In a pawn shop in Chicago On a sunny summer day A couple gazes at the wedding rings Their own This is John Head of the Head Family. You're listening to the Trucker Jukebox Show on Speaker Radio. I tried 
Say goodbye. 
This is Carla Head, and you're listening to Trucker Jukebox on Spreaker Radio.
tell you if an hour goes fast it goes fast right here we're actually uh at the end of our show we're gonna get her on down the road to another state to another town never know where we're gonna bring you the show next absolutely i want to thank you guys for being here listening to the program the folks that was in the chat room that was great and the folks that were just listening Thank you. Uh, I was your host, Trucker Jukebox, and this was brought to you by the Incorporated Trucker Jukebox Radio Network. We're going to go out with one more song, folks. A lefty Verzel, the brother of. Uh, see, I got a brain fart again. Uh, I'll think of it here in a minute. <laughs> Need more coffee, right? Uh, but anyway, here's the Long Black Veil. We love you guys. Be good, and we'll catch you on the next one. Ten years ago, on a cold, dark night, there was someone killed neath the town hall light. There were few at the scene, but they all agreed that the slayer who ran looked a lot like me. The judge said, son, what is your alibi? If you were somewhere else, then you won't have to die. I spoke not a word, though it made my life, for I had been in the arms of my best friend's wife. She walks these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave when the night winds well. No 
nobody sees, nobody knows but me. The sky falls high and eternity near. She stood in the crowd and shed not a tear. But sometimes at night, when the cold wind moans in a long black veil, she cries o'er my bones. She walks these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave. When the night winds well, nobody knows, nobody sees, nobody knows but me. WBIJ, shout out to everyone. You've been listening to another great show of Trumpet Jukebox on Speaker Radio. Hey, come back tomorrow. The holidays are coming. The holidays are coming. It's all good. The Georgia Hemp Company, with locations in Woodstock, Decatur, and Sandy Springs, has the full line of your favorite CBD and hemp products to keep you cool and calm. Like lotions, oils, and beverages. They also have a full line of CBD for your pets. The Georgia Hemp Company offers full consultations, samples, and Georgia's finest CBD. Visit their three Atlanta locations in Woodstock, Decatur, and Sandy Springs. Or check out thegeorgiahempcompany.com. Georgia's finest CBD. If you've never played a game that's so much fun, it's impossible to put down, then you've never played Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the best match three style mobile puzzle game out there. It's basically an action-packed adventure and a brain-boosting puzzle game all rolled into one. Most of the match three games on the market are just the same old format with different colors and maybe cookies instead of candies. But Best Fiends is different. You play through an actual storyline, complete with adorable, collectible characters called fiends. As you get further along in the game, you'll watch your fiends grow from wee baby versions of themselves into full-grown characters. The more you play, the more powerful and helpful your fiends become. So if you're tired of crushing the same old candy, give Best Fiends a try. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. episode please leave us a review on itunes
This was the first nation to industrialise, to send the plumes of smoke from the Midlands. We were the first to knit the deadly tea cosy of CO2 that is now driving climate change. And so we have a responsibility to set an example, and we are. Boris Johnson claimed his government's net zero plans are game-changing. The strategy includes grants of up to £5,000 for some households to swap their gas boilers for a low-carbon heating system. The £450 million scheme is part of a £3.9 billion of funding to cut carbon from heating and buildings. But Labour thinks that the investment is too modest. Shadow Energy Minister Ed Miliband voiced his concerns that measures won't be enough to hit the UK's climate targets. Despite hundreds of pages of plans, strategies and hot air, there is still a chasm with this government between the rhetoric and the reality. My fear is this plan will not deliver the fair, prosperous transition we need, equal to the scale of the emergency we face. Will some families be left out in the cold? Is there enough capacity in the system to keep household appliances on? And are ministers leading by example ahead of COP26? Welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Sam Coates, as we examine the story beyond the headline. I wasn't quite so environmentally aware when my children were growing up, so I suppose I wasn't quite so careful with the heating, although energy bills weren't so big then anyway. It wasn't so much of a problem, but since I've been in this flat... I have, I've bought thick curtains and I only heat one, when I do heat, I only heat one room at a time when I sit down in the evening. I heat the lounge and the bathroom in the morning. Other than that, I don't have much heating on at all. This is Sandra McLeod, a retired teacher who lives in a rented flat in Hackney in London. I had my own home in Colchester. But when we moved to London, I couldn't afford to buy. So we've been, well, I've been in rented accommodation since then. Um, My children have now all left home and I'm in a flat on my own. The 76-year-old told us she's trying to be greener, both for environmental and cost reasons. I'm with a renewable energy firm and I think that their costs are a little bit more than anyone else. But I prefer to stick with them because I know that the electricity I get is is all renewable. I used to do quite a lot of environmental work when I was a teacher. It was all quite newish then. There are concerns recent rises in the cost of gas could push up household bills. It's something Sandra admits is a worry. I suppose I'd just cut back more. I, I wouldn't be able to afford much more on my bills there as much as I can afford at the moment. So what does Sandra make? of the government's £5,000 grant to replace old boilers with a low-carbon heating system. Well, it's obviously a good start, but it's obviously not not enough for anybody to actually buy heat pumps who can't afford to put the rest of the money towards it. Ministers claim their plans will support up to 440,000 jobs across sectors and across all parts of the United Kingdom by 2030. Critics have well been critical about some of the detail, with Greenpeace describing the document as more like a pick and mix than the substantial meal we needed to reach net zero. Coming up, we unpick that detail and examine what we've learned about the government's strategy and how consumers and industry will be impacted.
I'm Emma Pinchbeck. I'm the Chief Executive of Energy UK, which is the trade body for the energy industry that includes both the energy retailers, but also everything infrastructure related from power stations to electric vehicle charge points. I'm Vicky Price. I'm Chief Economic Advisor at the Centre for Economics and Business Research uh, and a former government advisor. Vicky and Emma joined me on the podcast just a few hours after the plans were published. And once we'd all had a substantial meal, not a scotch egg in sight. Ember, I just want to start with you. If you were to listen to the reaction of politicians, some say that we haven't gone far enough with today's net zero strategy and the homes and building and heat and building strategy. Uh, some say that we've gone too far, that we're going to put too many burdens on people's lives in the coming year. Which is it? How ambitious is what the government have published today? We'll be the first major economy to go into the climate negotiations this autumn with both a net zero target and now a plan of some sort to deliver against it. Uh, It's also a response to the Independent Committee on Climate Change and their advice to government. So those two things are good. And just in terms of how the sector feels about some of the proposals, the best, you know, quote I've seen is it's a step forward, but it's not quite the giant leap for mankind that you might look for. That said, it is incredibly exciting to have it. On the costs, I'm just going to point to what the Treasury said in that zero review, which is that the benefits of decarbonisation are clear and they're confident that an economy run not on fossil fuels is better for citizens in the UK than one that is. So the economics of this are clear and I disagree with criticism around burdens on people. That said, we have to focus on making sure we spread the cost fairly and we need to see more on that from government. Vicky Price, as you look across the various bits of documents that the government have dropped out, what do you think is going to make the biggest impact to people's lives? There is no doubt that saving energy in their homes is going to be quite important and how they do it and how they do it cost effectively in a way that uh, also is done willingly rather than grudgingly is going to be pretty, pretty important. And we do know that emissions from homes account for about a fifth of the carbon emissions right now in the UK. But of course, we mustn't forget that buildings more generally do that. So even if you have new buildings, which are going to have you know, heat pumps or something else, there is a cost involved as well. So if you look across the whole world, something like 40% of all carbon emissions come out of buildings more generally, including the construction process of it. So one needs to go a lot further than just what is being announced at present to have the serious impact that we want to see. Emma, I was quite struck that all the way through the document, it refers to no regret decisions. I've never seen that in a government document before, because what they're essentially saying is we know where we need to get to, but we're not sure quite how we're going to get there. And heat pumps are likely to be part of the answer early on. Hydrogen might be part of the answer later on, but we're not quite sure whether it'll work. That's going to be subject to the sort of the trials. How does the sector feel about almost embarking on what feels like it has a sort of experimental edge to this policy direction? I've been working in the energy industry for 10 years, though with a strong decarbonisation bent to what I do. And I will tell you that what has changed is this has changed from being about something driven by the politics of decarbonisation and the need to tackle climate change to something which is being driven by an energy sector that can spot the opportunity from swapping over from fossil fuel generated molecules to clean electrons and an economy driven by clean electrons, which are cheap and domestically produced. And so I'd say the energy industry is really excited. It it feels a little bit like what I would imagine it felt like when we discovered the steam engine and built 
you know, the industrial revolution off the back of it. That is how big this moment is in technology for the energy sector. So in terms of what the government's proposing, backing technologies we're almost sure will fit into that electrified energy system is a no-brainer thing to do. And then allowing ourselves the capacity to be surprised by technology development is also smart. If we hadn't done that, we wouldn't have renewables. And I will tell you that 10 years ago, no one thought that renewables would be the dominant form of generation in our energy system. So, you know, technology development sometimes does surprising, interesting things. And, and I think the government is right not to put all their eggs in one basket. Vicky, one of the points of the documents that the government have released, that the plan that the government's released, is to try and get some of the incentives right to start the British public along the journey of swapping to less polluting forms of energy heating in their homes. Do the sums add up from that point of view? People have heard a lot about £5,000 towards a, a heat pump, but in many cases that's not going to be enough there's some help with insulation but is the government prepared to step up enough when it comes to trying to encourage people uh, to do this or are you going to have to end up relying on sticks rather than carrots well the history suggests that they're going to have to do more because of course we've had previous versions of trying to encourage householders to do something about the heating in in their homes we had the green deal we had the, the the green homes grant all those things haven't worked very well in the past because the carrots, if you like, simply weren't sufficient to incentivize people to change. And also the industry didn't respond the, the way that you want them to or the amount that was set aside for the huge task that was out there was simply not sufficient to cover all the homes that we wanted to have covered. And we've seen those policies fail. So it's interesting if you accept that some policies won't work, then you take that risk and do various things, but you spread your risks. And I think the important thing, which I think Emma was hinting at too, is that government needs to work alongside the sector. And even if one policy doesn't work, another might do. But I think we need to bear in mind that the sticks need to also function properly. The interesting thing about the UK is that we have had the lowest, I think, in Europe, tax on household gas and household electricity. Yes, the electricity one was higher, but it was still considerably lower than most other countries in Europe. And the gas one, really infinitesimal by comparison. And it's one of the reasons why we are in the position we're in, frankly, and we need to do an awful lot more. And I'm afraid a combination of carrots and sticks needs to be done in such an imaginative way to get us to move forward. We may have the plan, but getting both households and the industry, of course, to respond in the right way will require a very careful balance of all these things. And I'm not sure that the balance we have at present is necessarily going to do it. So, Emma, it strikes me that plan A, as it were, is to is to try and switch away from gas in homes and much more to electricity. And we'll continue down plan A unless something else, particularly hydrogen, comes along. How ready are we for that switch? Heat pumps require a lot of electricity potentially water heating might require quite a lot of electricity electric cars well the clues in the name is the grid is the system ready for what looks like a mass and wholesale switch to much much more intensive electricity usage yes and no yes we all think it's the way to go so the reason that um, energy uk has said we're fully supportive of mostly electrified heating and pursuing that route is not just that we see those technologies as probably the, the more competitive and easy to roll out relative to something like hydrogen, but also actually because of the benefits you get when you put those technologies on the system, which is changing in other ways. So, you know, from a householder's perspective, 
if you've got an electric heat pump in future, if you've got maybe an EV um, or access to an EV charger, if you've got other smart products and services in your home and you have an energy supplier that can offer you an interesting innovative tariff that can maximise the cheap electrons being generated on the grid, not only are you going to save money because of the cheap electrons on the grid, but also you can benefit from all kinds of interesting services that we're just starting to see in the market, like, you know, tariffs that pay you to shift your own energy use around, like the old Economy 7, but in live time. And so it's actually, it's it's really exciting for us as a sector to have a system that will be able to speak to itself from top to bottom, which is what we're talking about. Yes, obviously, though, that presents some challenges and we're going to have to do a lot in terms of you know, making sure the grid is ready, making sure we bring these technologies on in the right order and so on. But in terms of the overall direction, yeah, it's pretty exciting. And and can I just pick up on Vicky's point? That is the one striking thing about the shift in today's heat and building strategy that I would observe is that in a nutshell, the government is hoping that industry can drive the electrification of heat rather than relying on consumer demand, which is how previous policies have been designed. The difference in today's heat and building strategy is the government rightly thinks that the energy retailers can now see the opportunity in rolling out heat pumps for their customers and for what they can provide to the grid, and that they will be the ones to incentivize the cost reduction to simplify the installation and to develop an attractive consumer proposition. And that is why the finance is targeted to that kind of proposition. I think that is really exciting and really clever. It strikes me that lots of people today are enthusiastic about the direction of travel from an industry point of view. But the question is, can the government basically coordinate and work with industry to get everything, as it were, working in the right order? Because there's no point in switching to electricity if there isn't the capacity to deliver it. What do you think, Vicky, having observed uh, the political side as well as the the economics of it, of the government's capacity to get all of these ducks in the row in the right order? Because what we've got essentially is a massive, massive market intervention, all overseen by a bunch of kind of small staters in from Downing Street um, uh, downwards. Do you think they'll get it right? Well, what we've seen so far uh, with this government is that the relationship with industry hasn't been particularly good. Uh, I'm not talking about the energy industry. I'm talking about business more generally. And maybe they have now recognised, and I think that's probably what Emma was hinting, that they could just let that happen and, and take more guidance from the sector as to how these changes need to take place or can take place and where maybe some of the risk sharing needs to happen uh, and also you know be guided by the mistakes that have been made before perhaps and the energy sector has responded quite positively to this because they are now taking control maybe I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm all for more control. But no, like actually, Sam, what's really interesting about this moment is quite frequently I find myself as the advocate for an industry that's saying to government, please, God, regulate us. And they don't mean, you know, put barriers up to um, investment. But we do recognise that you have to get the market frameworks right in order to unlock private capital. So so Vic is right. What shifted is that there's a huge amount of private capital and private sector interest in driving the transition. That is very good news for government. But there are some things the market cannot or will not do that we need government to do. There are some really geeky things that are probably not for this podcast that we'd like to see in the energy industry, not least that our system operator, so the bit of national grid that is independent of national grid, we'd like to see that become more independent and take on some more governance roles. Aren't we living through a real-time test of the government's commitment to the long term versus the short term given 
the trajectory of energy prices over the last few weeks and months. The question I wanted to ask you, Emma, was as we've headed towards the publication of this strategy, has the reaction of government changed as oil prices and gas prices have inexorably risen higher, probably for the medium, possibly for the long term? And, you know, we're a week away from, Mm. barely a week away, less than that, from a massive spending review. Cost of living pressures are going to start to make the government discuss whether or not they should, for instance, cut VAT on on energy, make make energy consumption easier uh, and cheaper. Isn't that running in the opposite direction from everything that we're trying to do today, which is effectively through the insulation drive to cut people's energy consumptions. On the current crisis, what the government have, have quite rightly done is double down on the net zero transition as a response to it and ensure it's an international crisis driven by a volatile commodity that we are very dependent on because 85% of UK households-ish burn gas in their homes and we import a lot of it for the rest of the economy too. And so getting us off gas and onto onto domestic sources of energy generation, very smart move. And I've liked that they've pushed that. On the bills piece, yes, of course, when there are challenges with energy bills, that tends to lead to a kind of political caution at doing anything that affects the energy sector. What I would say is there are two things the government could do. They've announced spending on energy efficiency, though arguably, you know, maybe not enough. We could bring that forward and do as much as we can, because the less energy we use, the cheaper it is for customers. And the second thing is they've indicated the decision to move policy costs off electricity bills. They could do that sooner rather than later. And my understanding is that that's one of the conversations that became quite difficult with Treasury. But there are ways you could do that much sooner than 2022, and that would be immediate bill relief for people and help drive the electrification transition but Vicky, we've seen things like the decision to subsidise in all but name uh, CO2 production plants because gas prices were getting so high. Do you think that there's a tendency for short termism to trump the longer term direction of travel? We've seen it in previous governments where we got rid of the quote unquote green crap in uh, post 2010. So despite all the good intentions, it does fall away. You know, what's the risk that the government are robust today, but not in a week or a month or a year? There is definitely political short-termism. I mean, look at fuel bills uh, for people who fill their cars uh, with petrol. So the fuel duty has stayed the same, hasn't been increased for the last 10 years, slightly more than that, I think. And yet, you know, that would have been a very good sign of being serious about this. But there are also going to be some serious problems in relation to sectors which are really energy intensive. So there is a problem when you look at the costs that indeed some of those sectors are facing right now and the transition is going to be very expensive. So we have to bear that in mind. So we're not going to go back to normality where the type of sort of tax stakes of the Treasury are such that they can then have loads and loads of cash that they can give to whoever needs it to be able to move into this new type of energy environment where we really are meeting net zero targets relatively easily. It's going to be a pretty hard time when we still need to borrow an awful lot, where we are going to have all these challenges for quite some time, where even individuals as well in households will find it quite hard to get on. Remember, we're just talking now about insulation, about gas bills and switching to heat pumps, where older houses are less well insulated, they're 
basically occupied by older people, quite a lot of them quite poor, uh, with the result, in my view, that the government is going to have to take quite a lot of short-term political decisions, which are going to perhaps at times look like we're moving backwards in this. And it's inevitable. Loads of countries are doing exactly the same. But as long as you have this long-term aim and you incentivize sectors and individuals sufficiently, then perhaps we'll be getting somewhere. Emma, there wasn't a huge amount about nuclear power. How important is that as a solution to some of the problems we're seeing at the moment? The nuclear is in every pathway that I've seen as the most cost effective overall to get to the net zero target in the UK. And the government, they have announced the final investment decision for Sizewell C, so another power station beyond Hinkley. With then a commitment to nuclear, but not necessarily large plant, also AMRs and and other things. So long story short for the sector, we're not exactly sure what the final energy mix will be, apart from renewables will dominate it. But we do know we need another mix of technologies around renewables, and nuclear is one of the low-carbon options we have available. Of course, the upfront costs for nuclear are quite high. And as we know, uh, what we have arranged at present with Hinkley Point is that we have uh, committed to quite high prices for energy in order to ensure that that investment comes. So there is that element to it. But the interesting thing is that what's going on in Europe right now is that they're putting all their plans for climate change, mitigation and adaptation. Uh, And what they are trying to argue, various countries, is that nuclear should be included in those plans as part of sort of clean technology that can be used and almost as a renewable, even though, of course, it isn't, so that that can be added to the overall mix of other renewable sources that they have and therefore that they can be meeting the plans that they have been allocated, if you like, by the EU. Because at present, as you, I'm sure you know, uh, every country can decide its own energy mix, its own renewables mix, but somehow or other, nuclear doesn't enter into that. And so I think it is going to be an important part, but we have to bear in mind that it's not a cheap one to begin with, but of course it does become cheap once it's uh, operational. Finally, I just want to ask both of you how durable the settlement published by the government effectively is. Would the strategy seen at the moment uh, have been able to be had to get political consensus around it 10 years ago how sure are you that this will endure through the next few years or the next few general elections how much is there a political divide that puts some of the aims of, of this strategy at risk or have we ended up in a position at this moment in history of actually having unusually because it doesn't exist in other country a political consensus around what needs to be done and how we're going to do it Emma. I think speculating in politics always makes you look like a fool. But what I will say about this moment is firstly, the impacts of climate change are here and people are experiencing them. So we know that the public attitudes have significantly shifted, not just in the UK, but globally, and they want to see action from their governments. The second thing, and actually the reason I do this job, is that the economics have changed. So Governments can act if they know that, you know, the market is going to drive change anyway. We have an EV target partly because, you know, EVs were deploying at the rate that government felt comfortable setting one. So I don't think that's going anywhere. The energy sector is pouring money into these new technologies. It's just the future of the energy transition aside from climate change action. In terms of the politics... I'm very interested in the UK to see what happens after the COP because there's no question that being the hosts of a really big global moment on climate change is driving additional political interest in climate action in the UK. 
Will that last? I think it depends on the success of the rollout over the next few years. Vicky, political durability of what we've seen this week? I would say the most important thing would be what happens to the UK economy over the next few years. So if we're doing well, then that's fine. That makes life considerably easier for anyone in politics. The second thing, of course, which is um, a bit of a worry, is that a lot of what is planned depends on the on the private sector and business contributing quite, contributing quite significantly in terms of the investment that comes in. If for some reason that fails to happen, the incentives aren't sufficiently there to allow for that to take place, uh, then we may see that some of those plans simply cannot happen and therefore one will need to rethink. My thanks to our guests and to you for listening to the Sky News Daily Podcast presented by me, Sam Coates. This edition was produced by Annie Joyce along with Tatiana Alderson and Simon Windsor. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can find plenty more like it from where you found this one. And we'd love a review while you're there. The climate crisis can be an overwhelming and emotional conversation. We will not let you get away with this. But it isn't just about cutting carbon emissions or reporting on disasters. On Sky News Climatecast, we'll examine the big issues in depth with scientists, policymakers and activists. Every week, we'll highlight how small changes can make a big difference as we look for solutions to climate change problems. Sky News Climatecast. Listen, follow, subscribe. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.